you have your Bible with you this morning, can you turn with me please to James chapter 4 as we read together verses 1 through 6 of James chapter 4. Most of you will be aware that over recent Sundays we have been steadily working our way through the epistle to, to James and we come to chapter 4 this morning, page 1884 in the Pew Bible. And James, as he often does, asks a question. In fact, he asks a series of them. And he begins, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. Please excuse me as I wipe my nose this morning. I have been wrestling with a cold the last couple of days, and quite frankly, and I would appreciate you just keeping this between us, I am high on Sudafed this morning. So let's thank you. Tonight, millions of people across the nation will be watching the Super Bowl. And it is a spectacular event in every sense. So much so that last Thursday or Friday, someone sent me the following. You should be as excited about church, at church as you are about the Super Bowl. So when your pastor makes a great point on Sunday morning, pour Gatorade over his head. Now, I'm not necessarily against that, because my great points are so far and few between, I think I'm pretty safe. But I'd like to make a counter-proposal. And I'd like to propose that we invite our choir to take up the role of cheerleaders. And so maybe next Sunday morning, when you arrive, you will see them flipping each other up into the air doing back springs and handstands and creating triangles and choir, quite frankly, I think our television audience and our numbers on live stream would go up significantly if that was the case. So you don't want to miss an opportunity here. Now, my point in all of this silliness is this, that sporting events, lots of fun. If we are having a Super Bowl party tonight, we've prob probably spent several days planning and preparing for it, especially if we have family and friends around, and it is so much fun, and it should be. But when I read that comment, I did ask myself, on a Sunday morning, do I come to church with the same anticipation and expectation as I would to a great sporting event? Do I come with the same passion 
and prayerful approach and say, Father, as a congregation, as we open up your word this morning, speak to us from its pages, speak into our lives. And I'm not sure that every Sunday I do that. And yet, over the last few Sundays, since we started back into the epistle of James in early January, I think most of us would say that has in fact been our experience. As we have looked verse by verse, working our way through the epistle of James, immersing ourselves deeper and deeper into its pages, we have on the one hand been challenged, at other times reassured, at times we've sensed the Spirit of God retuning, recalibrating our deepest affections and moving us to that new level of intimacy with Him. And I trust and pray and hope that will be exactly our experience this morning as we come to chapter 4. And as we come to chapter 4, we know, of course, that James begins by asking the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want, and you quarrel and fight. And he's talking about that internal battle that takes place in the heart and mind and soul at times. Now, you may be here this morning saying, Richard, back in January you very kindly produced bookmarks for us to accompany this series on James. And on one side, you produced the Sundays in January, February, and March, and a passage of Scripture that go along with it each week. Inquire, you are very kind to participate in all of that when we pass these out. And the idea behind it was this that you read a passage of Scripture for the week ahead, and then you read it again on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And the more familiar you are with a passage, the more you explore that passage, the more it does, in fact, speak into our lives. And I think most of us have found that to be the case. And Richard, the passage that was for this week, I was reading slightly ahead when I read what causes fights and quarrels among you. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Richard, I have a question. And my question is this, but I need to paint a slightly different picture before I actually ask the question. So let me begin. Richard, I'm pretty certain I've heard you say that when the gospel impacts a person's life, it transforms, it renews, it changes the person's very character and nature, motivations, disposition, changes everything about them. And Richard, if it not only changes us, but I'm sure I've also heard you say that the Holy Spirit of God is given to us in response to the gospel, then the Holy Spirit equips and enables us, and we have living within us the same moral and spiritual power that brought Christ back from the dead. And if that is the case, Richard, why do we keep quarreling and fighting internally? And why do we sin? Because if God has blessed us abundantly, given us everything we need for this life to grow and develop and mature in our faith, why do we keep on sinning? Well, let me see if I can make an attempt at answering. 
And I would want to say this, that just as Christ coming into the world did not banish sin and tempt or temptation and sin universally, so his coming into a person's heart does not banish it personally. Although the power and temptation to sin no longer rules in our lives, and we've broken that power through the indwelling enabling of the Holy Spirit, we have not been taken out of its reach. In other words, once a person comes to a saving faith in Christ, are they changed and transformed in every aspect of their being? Absolutely. And the power of the addictive, enslaving quality of sin is no longer the case. But it doesn't mean that sin won't come and tempt. It doesn't mean that sin is any less enticing. It doesn't mean it's any less powerful in terms of its temptation. It simply means you no longer have to be submissive to it. You no longer have to give in to it. And we're going to see that next Sunday when we get into the second part of James chapter 4. And so what James is saying here is this, that yes, there are internal struggles going on in the mind of the Christian. And he asks, what causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from the desire that battles within you? And of course, he's right, they do, because sin comes in that enticing, attractive, exciting manner and draws us in. The other thing I wanted to point out was this. When James asks this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desire that battles within you? I wonder if James is writing from personal experience. New Testament scholars and historians tell us that James came to faith in Christ. His life absolutely transformed only after the resurrection. And that's a little odd because we know that the book of Acts tells us that James, the author of this epistle, was the brother of Jesus, his younger brother. Now imagine that. And we've touched on it a couple of times in the past, just in passing, but to be brought up in the same home as Jesus. What an incredible blessing that must have been. Jesus, sweet disposition, endearing, engaging, winsome, never put a foot wrong, loved by everyone, a perfect child in every sense. And then as he became an adult, and James watched him teach again and again and again and watch the impact of the grace of God through the preaching of the gospel transform and profoundly change people's lives. And James is watching Christ do all this and then to see the revealing glory, majesty, and power of God and miraculous events take place and James is thinking, this is my brother? Why didn't I see this? What on earth is going on here? He is the one who is the Messiah, the one who receives all of the acclaim, the adulation, the attention. 
I think James is writing from personal experience here, wrestling with who he is, who his brother is, his relationship with his heavenly father. And he understands the temptation and power of sin. And I wonder if James from time to time, like the rest of us, stepped over that line to become a little skeptical or cynical. And now he's writing to these young Christians who fled persecution in Jerusalem, going as far as Syria or southwest, as you see it on a map, towards Egypt. And he's saying, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Yes, they do. Of course they do. And so as James continues in writing chapter 4, he is saying this, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And the question is, James, what do you mean when you ask or tell, tell us rather, you adulterous people? Well, adultery is never a good experience. It is distasteful. It is toxic. It is hurtful and wounds and hurts everyone it comes into contact with. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, isn't it enough that Christ should die for you? Isn't it enough that he should draw you into a relationship with himself? Isn't that enough that he would lavish his love upon you, and yet you're going back to be the person you used to be? You need to stop that. With belief comes behavior, which is James' premise throughout this entire epistle. And he's saying, you adulterous people, stop that. Stop going back to the man or woman you used to be. Don't you know that friendship with the world, in other words, the culture society around you is hatred towards God. And his point is this, that the standards and values of culture and society are not always Christian values and standards. Sometimes they can be, but not always. And by that, I mean things like honesty, integrity, accountability, all good. But James is saying the Christian life is so much more than that. That's a good foundation that society agrees on. But then James talks of, and you're going to see it in subsequent weeks, holiness, purity, a desire to be Christ-like, be more prayerful, be obedient to his call. That's what James is saying. And he's saying, you adulterous people, don't you know friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Now, let me pause for a second and try and illustrate what I mean here. If you know me well, you will know that I have a fondness and an appreciation for the writings of William Shakespeare. And I do enjoy his plays. And when we have Shakespeare in the park in the summer months, I will go and participate or I'll watch it on DVD whenever I can. He was, I think, a literary genius. And I think those who teach literature would tell you that. And I have a distinct memory, and I'm sure I've told you this before, so please forgive me if this is too repetitive for you, that when I was 14, the equivalent of going into high school here in the United States, I was given two plays to read by my English teacher that year. And as a class, we studied Julius Caesar and also Macbeth. And I struggled badly in reading both plays. And I struggled badly, not simply because of the awkwardness of reading a play, 
or wrestling with Elizabethan English, although I did struggle with that, but I could not for the life of me understand the relevance between Julius Caesar in ancient Rome and the mid-1970s just outside Glasgow in Scotland. I was brought up in what was called industrial Lanarkshire. It was a steel town. We produced iron and steel. That's what we were known for. And neither could I get my head around the court, the royal courts of Macbeth. And I couldn't see the relationship. I couldn't see the relevance. And my English teacher would say to me, Richard, be patient. Slow down. Take your time. And over subsequent weeks, what I discovered was this, especially Macbeth, to some extent Caesar as well. Macbeth was about power and intrigue and greed and ambition. And the big question for the reader of Macbeth was this. If you could take the life of the most powerful individual in the land, you could take over his throne, blame his murder on someone else, and no one would ever find out, would you be willing to do so? And that's when the penny dropped. That's when I began to understand that Shakespeare is layer upon layer upon layer of meaning, and James is doing exactly the same. And James is saying, and if I can use the parallel, Macbeth was told at the beginning of the play that one day he would be king, and he wrote it off and said no. And then temptation and sin began to enter into his mind, and it began to twist his thinking, and he began to imagine himself as king, and he began to imagine who he could blame it on, and he began to imagine, and that slow, subtle nature of sin began to drag him in and rob him of his life. And that's exactly what James is saying here. Friendship with the world, that unrestrained ambition, the toxicity of sin was beginning to work in the heart of Macbeth and it ended up in absolute disaster. Just disaster. So what is all of this telling us in terms of what James is highlighting? Well, James tells us this. There is an internal moral battle going on in the heart of the Christian. And at other times he's saying some of it is external. It's out there. It is in the world, to use James's phrase. And he says, but when you come across it, please remember this. But he gives us more grace. And if you underline your Bible or put a tick in the margin, please do so at verse 6. It's right there, one of those great beginnings to a verse. But he gives us more grace. 
And what James is saying to his readers back in the first century and does in the 21st century, he's saying, when things don't work out the way you have planned, when your hopes and dreams have amounted to very little, when you have prayed and prayed and prayed and there is no answer, when you are wrestling with losing a loved one to dementia, when you as a young couple are grieving over a miscarriage and told no one, and you are hurting and beat up by the circumstance of this world, and your back is against the wall, and you have nowhere else to go, you don't know how to respond, please remember this, but He gives us more grace for daily need, daily grace, for instant need, instant grace, overwhelming need, overwhelming grace. And we can stand on His promises, and we can trust those promises that not only has He got you, but He will not let you go. And notice what the verse says, He not circumstance, not situations, not conditions you're facing. He gives us more grace. He gives, not grudgingly, not reluctantly, not, oh, it's them again. They keep coming back and asking for the same old thing. In fact, 1 John 3 says this, He lavishes, lavishes His love on us. He gives us, the three-year-old and the 93-year-old, the freshman and the grandparent, He gives us more grace. He never runs out. He never thinks, well, actually, yeah, I don't think I will. He gives us more grace. Annie J. Flint, an outstanding hymn writer in a bygone era. In fact, the hymn is a little dated in terms of its language, but it is no less powerful for that. She writes this, He giveth more grace when the burdens are greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, He addeth His mercy to multiplied trials, He multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men, for out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. He gives us more grace. For every moment of doubt, He strengthens. For each sin, He forgives. For uncertainty, fear, and anxiety, He gives Himself. You can absolutely trust Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this wonderful passage of Scripture this morning. 
Thank you that it speaks into our lives, as is so often the case on Sunday morning. And we ask and pray, O God, that the week ahead would be an extraordinary week, quite simply because you take us by the hand and lead and guide and direct us. Strengthen us, please, for those moments when we battle within. Encourage us, uplift us, and enable us, please, to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.